somebody way smarter than me said that like success is a lousy teacher. I think that's so true. That's so true because whenever I have succeeded, it's been great. I'm not saying that success is bad, but it hasn't taught me nearly as much as those moments where I fell flat on my face. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. So guys, I took a lovely 10-day break away from the Texas heat so I could think again, but I'm back. And I'm so pumped about our next interview. Once seen as the face of failure, which is insane, by the New York Times. Again, a great story that you have to hear. Sunil Gupta is my next guest for our South Asian author series. A best-selling author, renowned speaker, Harvard Medical School visiting scholar, and host of a global documentary series, which you must see, I'll put it in my notes. Sunil studies leaders around the world to discover and share simple, actionable habits that lift our performance and deepen our state of well-being. He definitely does that in this next book. Sunil was also a founding CEO of Rise, a breakthrough wellness company, and has recently released Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in What You Do. Guys, I can't tell you how much this book resonated with me. I literally have highlighted, I think, most of the book. And yes, it's based on Hindu philosophy, but this philosophy, it's all pillars and aspects that we can all relate to. It was such a digestible read and yeah, read it in two days and really felt like I learned a lot about what my dharma is. Dharma is your core, your gift, your purpose. So I really, really hope you will enjoy this awesome interview with Sunil Gupta. First of all, happy one day late Independence Day for yeah. our, our people. Did you do anything to celebrate? Yeah, I was with my family. We kind of okay. hung out. We had some Indian food. It was good. Wait, so I think over the 20 emails we've gotten back and forth with, you have family in Dallas. I do. My sister-in-law is in Dallas. She's actually having her first child, her first baby, next month. So yeah, we'll probably sneak over there to like say hello and you know meet the new member of the family. But most of my family's on the East Coast. You know, we're originally from Detroit, and then my my parents are in Florida now. My brother's in Atlanta. So everyone's spread out. We're the only ones in California. Yeah. So I actually just moved to Dallas this past year. I was born and raised in Houston. Yeah. And then kind of been all over the place. And so just moved back. And this is the first time since I graduated. I went to UT Austin since I graduated from college that I'm back with my family in the same state. So. Oh, wow. How does that feel? Like you, I'm sure. Like our parents are getting older. And so to be able to see them once a month is just a blessing. Not to talk about weather because it's kind of lame, but it is burning here. Like we are literally living in hell. And I, my kids, I wake them up at 7 a.m. Summertime, by the way, still. I mean, no school yet. But I wake them up at 7 a.m. so they can go outside for an hour. Wow. It's insane. Yeah. But yeah. I was just in California for 10 days. We just got back. We went to Taylor Swift. Hey, um, were you in LA? Yeah. The, yeah, we did it. Don't tell my kids because I'm going they to. wanted to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, you're not. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. But 10 days, I literally sound so ridiculous, but just, I could have done nothing for 10 days. But being in the weather that you don't think you're going to die in. Yeah. It's insane. But um, anyways, nice to be close to my parents. It's been good. Separate question. How do you like your Shure microphone? 
Is that, I like is it. that working out well for you? Can I, can I tell you, honestly, so my husband is in corporate America and gets all this fun stuff. <sighs> so he gets gifts all the time, and this was a gift to him, and he was like, go ahead. And so I've been using it, and I love it. What are you using? It's very nice. Um, I'm using Yeti, but it's big. It's like a massive, like a, it's like a huge yeah. sort of thing. Kind of like, your, like yours. I love Shore. I'm getting like the now the standing ones with, I have an audio room. This is our new house, so I'm turning this whole thing into an audio room. Oh wow! All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, 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 that's one nice thing is you you can you can create an audio room in Dallas. You know, have your own space. There is sometimes I don't know where my kids are. I just I, don't, I can't <laughs> I can't find them, and so no, it's been nice. And then, so how's the book tour stuff going? Have you started on that yet? We have, yeah, we have. We got some pod, some good podcasts lined up, and I'm doing I'm starting to do media interviews and all that kind of stuff, but. It's happening. It's happening yeah. now. Yeah. September, September 5th, right? September the release 5th. of the book, Everyday Dharma. Yeah. All right. Well, I will tell you, and I wrote this, I put this on Instagram, and I didn't write this on Instagram just to get likes. I really did read the book in two days. One, just the title itself. So I grew up Hindu. I consider myself Hindu. Very, I grew up going to Hindu camps and Monday every Sunday. And I kind of detached from the religion and culture in my 20s. And then as you're getting older, you realize, oh my gosh, this is beautiful, and kind of reconnecting back with the culture, with the religion. And obviously, I have two kids. I have two daughters like you. Yeah. How old are they? They're nine and six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of in the same boat. Nine, yeah, we 11, are. 11 and six. Yeah. I think we're cousins. After this book, I was like, I feel like everything he's been through, like that's what I've been through. <laughs> but yeah, we're same kind of age, same kind of situation. So I think to me, in the past few years, my parents are super religious and I don't know, it feels like this was the right time to read the book for me. All of it, you know, like it was kismet, like just really spoke to me. It would have anyways, but especially now. And my journey professionally has been crazy. as Not crazy, but you know, taking my essence has taken a turn, very interesting turns at many times. So I really did devour the book and felt really connected to it. So and it's going to be part of our next book club thing. We have a lot of Indians here, just FYI. So amazing, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to, but I have to, I have to ask you though. Like, did you talk to your parents about it at all? I have. So I just text them. I just finished it, you know, two days ago. I text them the book, and I'm not sure how your parents are. They've read every Vedic scripture possible. Like they have, they've had different gurus they go to. I in you know they know Ramdas. They've gone to you know I grew up going to Swadhya, which is. The meaning of it is self-study, so self-study through Hinduism. And so we were a part of that for a very long time. And I think now in their 70s, they're just trying to figure out what speaks to them, right? And so I, I did text my dad this book, and um, they're coming here in a few weeks, and they're going to take it and read it. Oh, wow. So they're very, wow. they're very, yeah, yeah. very happy. They're so happy that I read it. I'm interested to know what they will think of it, because I think with a book like this, it's always it's tough to find the right balance, right? Because I mean, you can go so deep on these topics and yet the goal was, now how do I make this something that even people who know nothing about Hinduism, know nothing even about Eastern philosophy, they would get something out of it. And that's that's kind of a hard line to toe, you know, and I tried my best to sort of be honest to, I didn't want to overly Westernize things that didn't deserve to be but at the same time, I wanted to be something that was universally accessible. So, yeah, like I'm glad it landed with you. I'd love to know what your parents think of it too. I was going to tell you that I think you did a really fantastic job balancing it. And for someone like me, Indian American, who grew up learning about it and reading about it, even I forget things, right? Even I'm like, wait, what? And 
it was simple in a way where I know that my friends and family who don't aren't into Hinduism or don't know about it. This is a very easy book to digest. And I think you've accomplished it mainly, I think, because you added your own stories in there, which is so key to me, which has made it so easy to read. Because it can't just it can't just be a guide. Like we got to know you, which I think for me personally, like you're a storyteller. I'm trying to be a storyteller for the South Asian community. And so to me, the mix of kind of the guidance and lessons you've learned throughout life, mixed with your honest experiences, your feelings, all that that matters. You know, that's what makes a book digestible. And so I think you did a great job doing both. Well, thank you. And it's honestly, you know, I mean, have you thought about writing a book? I mean, I think everyone has, right? Yeah, well, and I think I think that like, at least for me, it's the only way is to tell your own story. Obviously, without being too self-indulgent, it's got to serve, you know, the, the book and it has to serve the message. But I think if I'm telling somebody else's story, like you'll notice, like I, there are people that I talk about in the book, right? There are heroes of mine, Jimi Hendrix, Toni Morrison, but it was really, really hard for me to sort of authentically get into what they were feeling in that moment, right? Because how, how would I how would I know, right? And of course, I can read other stuff and I can read their own biography, but it, I always found there to be something like very, very, I mean, when you can go into your own story, the level of detail that you can get to, I just think that that's like the only, it's the only way. I think that is the only way, honest. And it's the only way you can be vulnerable. People get to know you. I think everyone is yearning for honesty nowadays. Honestly, I think this is why I do the podcast. I feel like I'm doing the podcast to find myself, honestly. It's been like a it's like a two and a half year therapy session for me. <laughs> I think that's I think that's great. I mean, I I've spent the past few years going out and interviewing people and and researching people who I admired from all different walks of life and I'm sharing what I learned, but at the same time, it's very much been filling up my cup, right? Because I, it's, it's like, tell me what I should do. And I don't say this during the interviews, but I'm kind of like, I don't, I'm lost. Like, tell me, tell me what's going on. And, you know, I've actually gotten better about this. When I first started interviewing people, I'd be like, well, say hypothetically, somebody is in a situation like this. And, and now I've gotten much better at like, hey, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing right now. Like, can you, can you help me? I mean, that is so much more desirable to watch. I watched the first two episodes of American Express Business. Oh, cool. I guess you did it this past year. Was it this the, the yeah, series? Yeah, we filmed it. We filmed it last year. Yeah. And I mean, there, it's part of your book, but being curious, right? You can't assume we can't, no matter how old we get, we never know everything. And you always should be curious. I don't care how old you are. Right. And that's what makes a person interesting, I think. So when you were asking the questions in the first episode, like you genuinely were like, Okay, how, why, how did you do this? Even though you have built your own startups, I think if you were to be like, not lecturing, but acting like you knew it all, like it wouldn't be as desirable. I don't know. That's as a viewer is what I'm saying. No, I mean, I mean, thanks, thanks for saying that. If anything, I spent a lot of time trying to be that person and then just kind of realized that like I was losing twice. On the one hand, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily getting what it is that I wanted by trying to have the, the outside world perceive me as successful, right? And at the same time, I wasn't working on things that I actually wanted to work on or expressing myself that I wanted. So I was losing twice. So finally, I kind of came to grips with this idea that, okay, let me at least do something that is internally satisfying, right? And l- let me kind of show up the way that I feel like would be inner, gra- inner greatness for me, right? And if the outside world 
doesn't necessarily respond to that, well, at least like I have this, right? And then the irony, which is like cliche, but so, so true, is that usually when I study people who sort of made that flip, made that switch, that's when the external stuff really started to come into its own, right? That's when that's when they started to find their audiences. That's when they just, that's when they started to find some traction in a new in a new way of life. They started to make money and to be able to support their craft. A lot of that stuff came as a result of kind of flipping the script on: Does outside riches fuel internal, or does internal fuel the outside? Like you said in the book, it's a it has to be a balance, right? And so it's not like we can all go in the forest and retreat, but we have to have that balance. As first generation born Indian Americans, especially for us, it's, it's hard, you know, like we're always like, go, 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 doctor, lawyer, engineer, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I became a lawyer. Obviously it didn't last very long. I think it's, yeah, in a way it's harder for our community to deal with that balance a little bit. And also like just the American culture. That's the thing that's fascinating to me about Dharma is I think I think it's something that we all have access to, right? It's something that I think we all feel. But I think that what makes it hard sometimes is that either we have lost touch with that place, and so in some ways it almost feels like we're living somebody else's life, or like we kind of have a sense of what that thing is, but we're too strapped. We're too strapped for time, too strapped for money. It's the, duties. Space. it's the duties. It's, it's all the duties, <laughs> all the stuff. You got kids, you got drop-offs, you got jobs, you got bills, you, got, you have all this stuff. And so a lot of what I sort of address, I think, directly in the book and talk about the struggle of, I think head-on is like, it's not always easy, right? And, and things like purpose and meaning in some ways have become so soft and squishy because we have other stuff going on. And yet... That doesn't avoid the fact that I think every single one of us sort of feels this yearning to want to have some meaning in in what we do every day. So I think that's key what you just said. I think finding yourself, the meaning, the purpose behind life, it has become squishy for most of us. And going out there and finding it, who everyone feels like, okay, we don't have time. We don't have time to go do Vipassana for eight days, whatever it is. Yeah. And so your book gives us a practical guide to doing it in our lives, in our crazy lives today. And I think that's key. And I think that really speaks to us and our generation and our age, you know, I mean, all ages, but especially now, I feel like it really hit me hard. Yeah. As a parent and then as a child of aging parents and just, we're kind of in the middle of this grind. Everything, right? Yeah. Like yeah. literally everything. I feel like Dharma has been one of these things that that has almost in some ways been frustrating for me because it's kind of like, yeah, I know it, I know it exists, but I have all this other stuff going on. How am I possibly going to start spending time with this? I think my favorite chapter in the book ended up becoming chapter two, which was which was bhakti. And bhakti was all about devotion. And the thing is that devotion for me has always been a function of time. How much time am I spending with something that equals devotion? And it wasn't until I really started to study all these people who I think were very, very committed to their dharma for the thing that they wanted to put out into the world and realized that like a lot of them had full-time jobs and, and, not, and not just that, but responsibilities and kids and all that kind of stuff. When I started to see devotion as less as being full scheduled, but more about being full hearted, that's when things started to flip for me. And, and, it, and it makes, to me, it makes perfect sense. I mean, the thing that I didn't write about in the book is like the most devoted thing in my life. And I think in a lot of people's lives is like the loved ones that they have, right? 
But it's not like we spend every minute of every day with the people we love, right? right. I mean, I, if I did, you, I think you my, can't. You can't. You can't. My wife would. My <laughs> yeah. wife would kill me. Like she I wouldn't mean, want we'd all that. We kill right? each other. Yeah, we would kill each other. But before the kids wake up in the morning, on most days, my wife will sit down together and we'll just have like fifteen minutes of like connected time with one another. Usually it's just drinking coffee, right? And it's before like the kids wake up and start screaming bloody murder that we have like that time. And that is our devotion, right? That, that, and it's 15 minutes a day. Sometimes it could be longer, but if nothing else, we have that. If you look at like monks who are completely dedicated to the idea of meditation and contemplation, it's not like they're meditating all day long, <laughs> They're meditating for fixed periods of time every day, and then the rest of it is spent working the land, doing the upkeep, basically doing the, the equivalent of, of making their lives work. So I think as soon as I started to see devotion to Dharma as less as I've got to fully, fully commit my entire schedule to something and more about having really connected moments of time with it on a consistent basis, that things really started to change for me. It's practical. It's doable. It's not overwhelming. It's not like you have to, like, like you said, turn into a monk and, and leave the world, leave our everyday lives to make this happen. I really connected with the Bhakti chapter too. And I mean, all your stories about, I, I call the grandfather Dada, you called him Bauji. I cried at the end of the book, by the way. Just, I think I felt a lot of emotions that you had gone through. But yeah, the, the story of, of Toni Morrison making that list, which isn't it sounds crazy, but I did the same thing because I have had a journey with my professional career. I followed my husband's career. I mean, we've moved seven times in 14 years, and I've been wondering what my essence is for a very long time. And I'm finally tuning into it and plugging into it in my 40s. But I wrote down a list, and I said, what can I not live without? What must I do before I die? Or what's, you know, and I really, I wrote mother to my children, wife to my husband, and then story, uh, bringing up, lifting up the South Asian community somehow. Wow. And, and that was like maybe three years ago. Huh. Uh, I don't know. I read that chapter. I was like, what? Am I Toni Morrison? Yeah, you are Toni Morrison. So, <laughs> but like, but that's, that's such clarity though. Like when did that call about lifting up the South Asian community, when did that first start to come to you? I think I've always had it. I think I also have this seva in me since day one, which I know is, is another a pillar in the book, but to give back, I just, it's always been like, how do you do that? And I don't know. And does it make any money and all that crap? And so I think my version of it has been the podcast and what's coming out of it, which has been different paths the past year, um, but to uplift our community. And from that, from the podcast has come different opportunities to help out and do this and that. And, and exactly like the book is saying, you just, if you keep your path open to different possibilities and you're not stuck on this one way of succeeding or meeting your goals and you're enjoying this journey, it's possible. But I do wonder, and I, and I wonder what you think about this, do you think to be able to understand that and do that, it's a matter of growing up and aging a little bit. And like, I don't think I could ever have thought this way in my 20s. And so how do kids in their 20s that may be listening to the podcast I mean, what do they do? Because in my 20s, I was like, law school, got to do it. Brother's a doctor. Blah, blah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder the same. Like, I wonder if, if, I, if I gave this book to my 20-year-old self, what would he do? I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is I, I, I wrote this book with the idea that when my daughter, my older daughter goes to college, I want to be able to hand her a few things. And, and, I, and I want this book to be one of those things. I think the thing that is changing 
and maybe changing for our kids is that Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar has this sort of notion of the arrival fallacy. And I write about this in the introduction of the book, right? And the, and the arrival fallacy is basically this idea that at some point in time, you're going to have accumulated enough wealth, enough status, enough achievement that you're going to sort of feel like great. You know, you're going to feel this lasting sense of happiness. And I think what's happening is that we are starting to get wiser to that. Generation by generation, I think we're starting to kind of get a sense that that formula, as is, is kind of broken, right? Because we can chase the next deal, we can chase the next car, the next house. And what we realize more often than not is that it gives us a temporary feeling of like joy, and then we're off to what's next. And for me, it took me a long time to kind of say, oh, I'm like, this is what's happening right now. But my sense is that Gen Z, for lack of better phrasing, like, I think they're actually much, much wiser to this than we were. Right? You know, and I think that's part of the reason that they're actually asking the deeper questions, even at an early age, questions that we were never we were never taught to ask. I mean, we kind of we kind of went out there and we were like, yeah, let me become a corporate consultant. And and I had my sort of my roadmap. I was gonna like, I'm gonna go from this to that to this to that. And eventually I was gonna reach this moment. And I think what's happening now is that younger people are asking, let's say all that happens, am I truly gonna feel successful? Am I am I truly gonna have had like a sense of meaning in my life? And I think it's that's a good thing. I mean all the stuff that Viktor Frankl did around man's search for meaning was really around, I think, this concept that's, I think, really coming to a head. And with, with Frankl, you know, he's a Holocaust survivor, he's a neurologist, and, and he really went deep on this sort of trade-off that we make between money and meaning. I would say for our parents, like most immigrants that came to the United States, and I would say older generations of America is, Americans as well, the idea is that like, you could earn enough money. And if you earned enough money, you could create meaning in your life with that money. Like wealth could lead to a sense of purpose. But I think that started to shift. And that's what Frankel was really talking about in the later start of his career when he was starting to kind of like, you know, hang up his research. He was starting to kind of do these, these bodies of work that started to say, hey, people who are kind of coming into the workforce now are starting to value meaning just as much as money. And, I, and I'd say the tide has just continued to shift to the point that like, nobody wants to suffer. We're not talking about people being in poverty here. But after you can you know, afford the essentials, you have shelter, you have food, I think it becomes about something much, much deeper than adding to the compensation. That's where I think things start to turn a little bit tricky for us because we know what the path to compensation oftentimes looks like. That's been conditioned in us from an early age. But what does the path to purpose look like? What does the path to meaning look like? And, and I think the thing that I try to like outline in terms of that struggle in the book is that it can be very tempting to feel like you need to quit your job, move to the Himalayas and find yourself. But the reality is that if you use some of the tools that, that are kind of laid out in the book, tools that I had to sort of learn how to use, you can start to do an inner exploration that kind of gets you to this point where you start to realize that some of these things have been true all along. Like one of my favorite questions in the book is, what would you do if you were guaranteed to fail, right? Because I, I think like sometimes the question is like, what would you do if you were guaranteed to succeed? If failure, if failure was like, was impossible, what would you do? But I think that that sometimes leads us down a, a bit of a strange path. At least for me, if I answered that question when I was in my 20s, it'd be like, well, I'm going to go start a billion dollar company because that will give me enough wealth. And the, 
But if I ask myself a question like, what would you do if you were guaranteed to fail? Well, now it becomes not about necessarily wanting to fail, but it becomes about identifying that thing that you love so much that you would do no matter whether no matter it's what. Yeah. yeah like, if, like if, what, you got, if you didn't get paid. If you didn't get paid, like, yeah. like for Tucker it out, right? Like for your podcast. Did, I get when paid you started enough out, to buy groceries, guys. <laughs> but I'm saying like, even when you started out, like I'm guessing that you probably started with this idea of like, listen, there are a lot of podcasts out there. If it was simply about trying to get numbers of listeners, which I know like the, the podcast is doing very well now, but when you're first starting out, like how much did that really matter to you? And how did you think about None that? None of it. The only thing I thought of was I have two small kids. I have changed careers 10 times, plus my husband, but because of all the moves. What is my purpose? Why am I here? And I literally started it, honestly, out of desperation. Maybe it's because I felt like I had no voice at home or maybe there was a, I mean, again, this is my two and a half year therapy. I felt like I had no voice as a South Asian girl growing up. I think a lot of it is there. And so I think if I really dig deep, there are many reasons I started that, but I think it was to find my essence and maybe be able to yell it out loud to whoever would listen, honestly. I I never thought it would go anywhere. Yeah. But I love that though, because it is, it is expression, right? And we don't need permission to express. I think the thing that I was confused about for so long is that permission came from sort of this outside validation, right? Permission came from, from having achieved something, right? Or permission came from enough people reacting to my work and saying, that's great. But that's not the case. So I wanted to be a writer for a very long time. Right. And I, Since and I like day to, one, almost. From, from day one. You got some and, very and, cute stories about your speech writing, by the way. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I have so much of all the stories I love. But yes, you were. You seem like you were pretty convinced to be a speech writer since you were a kid. Yeah. And then I took this massive, massive detour where I was doing kind of the opposite. And I was working in Silicon Valley and, and tech and, and startups. And it's not like, it's not like that stuff was, was a waste, but I, I really did feel disconnected from my dharma during that time. And to get back into it, I had to carve out time, right? That's one thing. Like I had decided to get up early in the mornings and like sit down and write and devote myself from some small way to this, this dharma. But the bigger thing I had to get over was this idea that I might be writing stuff purely for me. I would be sitting down and writing stuff, knowing that like no one else out there might you, actually. You may not get that standing it. ovation. I may not get the standing ovation. I may not. I may not get anybody clicking into a link if I published it. Once I came to peace with that, how good did that everything feel? Everything changed. Yeah, everything changed. And, and and like and I should I should say like coming to peace with it enough enough where it didn't block action. Because I still, I still think that there's a part of me. I mean, this book is coming out on September 5th. There's going to be a big part of me that's going to be like, I hope it does well, right? The difference though, is that even if it doesn't, and even if it doesn't hit any type of list, it doesn't, it doesn't make it quote unquote big. I know that this will have been worth it. And in the same way, it seems like for you with your podcast, even if like it was just you and me listening to this episode, it seems like this time you're spending with me right now would be worth it. I don't know. I'm putting words in your mouth. No, I'm literally about to say, and, and that's, uh, you know, really quickly, I pivoted as well the past year. I'm, I decided if it's just me meeting someone cool every week, how amazing is that, by <laughs> yeah. the way? Like, what am I complaining about? I don't have 50,000, whatever it is. Like, I have completely shifted 
the way I feel about it. And then naturally the whole game has shifted for me. I just stopped, doesn't stop caring. I just shifted the way I looked at it. Shift the way you look at it. I mean, yeah. and, and I think like, I like that it's not about not caring, right? Because Yeah, care, of course I, you I, care. I, I, yeah. I think sometimes, I think sometimes that's the false choice that we're given, right. which is that if you want to go internal, you have to stop caring about the external. And I, I don't think that's true at all. And I, and I think that's sort of a misperception that sometimes particularly Westerners have about Eastern philosophy is that Eastern philosophy doesn't give a shit about like wealth or status or money. It just like, it wants you to renounce all that. And sure, there are parts that, that can, that can sort of come off that way. But what I love about Dharma is that it's not saying that at all. It's actually saying that you're just not looking to that stuff to fulfill you internally. You're not making the mistake of believing that outside success is somehow going to lead you to this feeling of inner greatness. But if you can if you can start with what is your inner greatness? What is that thing that you are dying to share with the outside world? Well, then you're on a, probably a much more likely path to actually doing stuff that, that people actually do care about because it's coming out with an emotion, it's coming out with an imagination, a creativity, an energy that you probably wouldn't have if you're doing things purely for the outside result. Guys, it's a bad Betty alert. I want to tell you guys about an amazing podcast hosted by my friend, Sangeeta Palai, called Masala Podcast. Masala Podcast is a multi-award winning South Asian feminist podcast all about taboo topics in South Asian culture. Everything from sex, sexuality, periods, porn, menopause, mental health, and a lot more. After four successful seasons in the UK, the next podcast season comes to the U.S. featuring Hollywood actors, magazine editors, and massive music icons. Listen to Masala Podcast on all podcasting platforms. Check it out, guys. It's really amazing. I feel like a lot of our, you know, what, what the Gita says and the Vedic scriptures tell us and what I have learned growing up with my parents is, is it's about balance, it's about moderation. You don't want to go extreme on things, right? It's, it's never the way to go. I have a quick question for you in terms of you had your company rise. I, I know you've done it. You did a few startups before that you were saying in the tech world and you in the book, I believe that you called it, you know, a failure when, when, when it didn't work out. Why did you call it a failure? Because my quick point of view on and where I am at now is that if I didn't try all this random crap I've done and failed and took the bar twice and just all sorts of things, would I be here? Would I have fought for my dharma as much? How can you really find your dharma if you don't fail? I mean, it's a great question because I've failed at a variety of things, you know, and, and I've, I've run for public office and I've lost. I've, I've put out books that went nowhere. I have started companies that, that shut down. Are they failures? I don't know. You know, it's, it's, I think for me, I got written up in the New York Times as like the, the poster child for failure early in my career. So I'm going to pause on you for that. Yeah. That, that was yeah. one of my like quick, funny questions that I had yeah. in a fast round. Yeah. I got, I got to ask quickly, what yeah. the hell, what the hell? Like, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get a call from this conference organizer. This is after two of my companies had, had shut down. And then, and then I had, had been part of Groupon, which you might be familiar with. And Groupon was a company that did very well for, for a period of time and then just kind of crashed and burned. It did really quick, right? All happened very quickly. So within 18 months of starting, I joined early, early days, we, you know, before we raised any kind of meaningful funding or anything like that. 
in the first 18 months, we were uh, Forbes magazine had named us the fastest growing company of all time. Uh, we reached these like crazy valuations where we were one of the first, you know, I hate this word, but unicorns out there. And then very shortly after going public, it just, we lost like tens of billions of dollars in market value within like three financial quarters and none of it came back. And so it went from this like, you know, hero to, to basically zero in everybody's books. So around that time, I get a call from this conference organizer and, and she's like, hey, so you've had, you've had these two failures, right? And then, and then Groupon happens and that, that, that doesn't work. Like, what if you like come to this conference and like talk about some of this stuff? And, and I was like, sure, why not? You know, let me. Do we have this lady's name? So no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. Well, the name of the conference was FailCon. And like other people had spoken at it, other like, you know, and I, and I felt like if other people were being vulnerable about it, then I should, I could, I should do the same. So I get up on stage. The difference though, is that the, there was a reporter. I didn't know this at the time. There was a reporter from the New York Times in the audience taking notes. So you fast forward to this full length article on failure with my face as the cover of this article. There was a point in time when no one wanted to talk, to, talk about failure to a point that it seemed like the whole world was talking about failure. And this article was put out right around that time. So all of a sudden, this is 2014 when the article came out. And so all of a sudden, I mean, I swear, there was a point in time, this article goes so viral, where you could have Googled the word failure. Like, that's it. Just the word failure. And my face would have been one of your like top, it would have been right in the top of your grid. What were mom and dad saying? Were they freaking out? That's the out? thing. That's the thing. That's the thing. It's like we are doing everything we can to be perceived as a success, right? I know I was. Like yeah, all I of wanted course, of was course. the world for to see me as a success. And then here I am literally being synonymous, according to the internet, with the word failure. That taught me a few things. The biggest thing that that taught me, though, is I think coming back to your point, which is like, it opened the door to conversations with a lot of people who I who had succeeded who I had not I had no idea that they had actually had these failures because you, when you look people up typically you don't see that in their LinkedIn profile you don't see that in their bio on their website right or any social media right we 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 show the best parts of our stories but we don't necessarily show the messiness in between but because of this article it like opened up the door to these vulnerable conversations with with people that had achieved extraordinary things that had failed in unknown ways. And I started to kind of realize that it's all growth. You know, I forgot who said this, but somebody way smarter than me said that like success is a lousy teacher. I think that's so true. That's so true because whenever I have succeeded, it's been great. I'm not saying that success is bad, but it hasn't taught me nearly as much as those moments where I fell flat on my face. You actually have a great quote. Who wrote that? I have so many quotes from your book. I'm literally writing them all on my like mirror. My husband's like, what are you doing? Oh, Victoria <laughs> Holtz. She said, yeah. never, you wrote, you put this in under Korea. By the way, I've highlighted the like entire thing of Korea. I had there's so many good points in there. Um, but in the eighth pillar or, you know, step of kind of finding your dharma, you wrote from Victoria Holt, never regret. If it's good, it's wonderful. If it's bad, it's experience. It's experience. So like, I feel like the word failure should be just, I don't know, gone. Something yeah. else. Something. I carried that quote around in my wallet the entire time when I was running for public office. Because it was the scariest thing that I've ever done. Because when you run, you're doing it in such a public way. And if you lose, you lose in such a public way. And I was scared. I was scared of that. 
And it happened. I lost. But that quote, I carried around in my wallet. And it was always there to remind me. Before town halls or before speeches, I would, I would literally repeat that to myself. If it's, if, it's, if it's good, it's wonderful. If it's bad, it's experience. It's experience. I have my own quote in my own head whenever I have a bad experience or fuck up in some way, which is all the time. I'm always yeah. like, you know what? This is going to be a really good story. So that's it. Yeah. It's going to be, because no one wants to hear the success bullshit. Everyone wants to hear like, what happened? I'm like, yep, yeah, fucked up again. But when I have my wine nights, it's a great story. It's going to be <laughs> a great story. So, you know, another way of putting it, basically. I think also as parents, I've started to appreciate these things in a deeper way. I don't know about you, but like for my parents, you know, they, they were so wonderful in so many ways. But what I heard about more than anything else was how awesome they were at school, right? And how All hard the they and how hard they worked, right? Hey, my, my and, dad was IIT Bombay, second yeah. second chair somewhere. I don't even know. I was like, I barely passed UT. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure for our parents too, there were mess ups along the way as well. But I, I get it. Like I think that like their their journey was very different than than ours. And and I think that like to sort of wear all that stuff as a badge of honor meant a lot to them. But the cost of it, though, is I think that I didn't relate to my parents at, at a very deep level. And I hid a lot of sort of my embarrassment and shame from them or my fear and my mistakes uh, whenever things Indian that we talked about openly. Is, yeah. is it because you were felt like – I know there's a lot – there's st- many stories about you know growing up, being the yeah. only brown kid in school. Again, I have a whole section on childhood, so we'll go straight to the main question – I think a lot of us went through that, right? Being the the brown kid in school, the Indian kid in school. Did you not connect with them because of the Indianness uh, of our parents and not wanting to smell like your mom's food going back to school, or was it just other things? Was it was think, it the culture? Think, yeah, I mean, I think I'm guessing you and I sort of felt pulled in two different directions. And I felt like I did a bad job with both. Like I would cake baby powder onto my skin to make it look more white, right? You should have used fair and lovely, by the way. I heard about, I've heard recently about fair and lovely. It's like the worst. I was putting fair and lovely on my face. It was... (laughs) <laughs> but who the hell was I kidding? Like it's yeah. like it's not like kids like looked at me and said, "Oh, that's a white dude now named Sunil Gupta." <laughs> I don't know what I was doing, right? Yeah. I, but I was doing a bad job being Indian, and I also felt like I was a bad job being American. Neither was working at home. I th- think I tried to distance myself from my parents. But I also try to connect with them sometimes, right? Like, and I and I think that that was through. If I didn't get good grades, I think like I really could have used. I think in those moments, a failure story. I think I could have really used in those moments them saying, "Listen, this happened to me as well," and I pulled out of it. And I guess for you and me, and I, I think maybe, and a lot of this is just 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 the time and place that we we are in. And it's not to judge our parents, but I think the moments you're sharing with me right now, I can almost guarantee that those that's going to be gold for your kids, right? Because this shit's going to happen. And instead of being like, well, I was pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> yeah. Instead of that, being able to say, listen, let me tell you about this, this time when I wanted this more than anything else in the world and it didn't happen. I love that you said that. I'm thinking about my mom and dad and I don't think I've ever heard until like later on when we like we grew up and businesses and stuff, but like growing up failure, I don't think I've ever heard them say, oh, I really messed up there or that way. Like it was never, 
And I don't know, again, they're in their 70s. So, you know, rose-colored glasses, everything was perfect. I have no idea. But yeah, like my dad and mom never, like at least education-wise, like it was always like boom, boom, boom. And my brother too. I know you have an older brother who's a doctor, but say brother's a doctor. And I'm like, huh, no one's messing, <laughs> no one's messing up here. What's happening? <laughs> like, why am I the only one? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It would have been nice to hear it. You're right. Same. It totally. took me like years, years to, to admit I failed the bar the first time. It, like I took a year off my life, that the whole thing. But like just to even admit that, I mean, I dropped 20 pounds and I was never a test taker. Just wasn't, it wasn't me. It was never me. But like, I just could never, I literally started talking about it on the podcast in my forties. <laughs> wow. That yeah. was, a, that's yeah. great. And, and it's, like, it's good therapy. Good therapy. And during that time, when like you took the bar for the first time, like how badly did you want to be a lawyer? I didn't. I never want to be a lawyer. We'll have to at some point whenever you have time in Dallas, we'll talk about suck a ball. But like I actually wanted to go into film and blah blah blah. But I my first job was at Enron, and that wow. did not work out for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. I was trying papers, and I was like, this is really confusing. And then in between Enron and law school, my brother already became a doctor, so I was like, well, I'm not. He he checked that box, so I'll do something, do the law thing. I actually moved to Bombay for a year to become, I wanted to dance. So I was a backup dancer for a while and worked at a, I knew I had this side of me this whole time. I just never knew what to do with it. Never knew. Yeah. So it's, it's the whole, like you, like you and your journey kind of been uh, on a search, constant search for Dharma. You know, I wanted to ask you this. This is actually one of my first questions. Do you, you had a quote in there. I'm not sure if you said this. Or it was someone else. You you said when it comes to dharma, you can run, but you can never hide. So my question to you, because you have been, you know, this is you've been writing about this, you've been really thinking about this. It's been in your your soul for a long time. Do you truly believe that? It's kind of a monk question, but do you really believe that everyone can will find their true essence, or will people die without really finding it? No, I think everybody does. Really? I think every, yeah, I think everybody does. I, I think I think how connected to it is is the question, right? But I think that even sort of later on in life, people who have lived long careers, I'm I'm very strongly considering writing a book now about sort of career longevity. And so I'm talking to a lot of people who are sort of later on in their lives who have lived these very, very full sort of careers, but have really felt like when they got to the end of it, something was missing. They had made the money, they had done the stuff, but that, that there was something that was still yearning. I think Dharma is a whisper. It's inside of you all of the time. I don't think there's any escape. And purpose and meaning, you know, we talk about these words in very flowery ways sometimes, but the reality is that they can hurt like hell. When you are outside your purpose, when you don't feel like you have meaning in your life, you feel it, right? You feel it. And you can be working as hard as you possibly want on something that doesn't feel like it's your purpose and you can be getting all sorts of rewards for that thing. Then you're still going to feel like something is missing. And we get pretty good sometimes about ignoring that, but we can't ignore it forever. You are going to sort of come in contact with it. The question is how deliberate you want to be about sort of going back and really connecting with that thing. The reason I think that we're afraid of that, especially when we're on a, on a track to objective success, is that if we sort of go back there, are we going to blow our own lives up? And I think that that's where the misperception of like things like Dharma start to come in, which is that in order to express this thing, I have to completely shift my entire life around. 
right? I completely do things differently, which is not, do, which is not, it's not true, right? And I really try to get into the struggles in the book of people who had this thing, but were already locked into a very different career path. Karen Struck, who was a nurse, she really wanted to be a writer, right? And she wanted to be, she wanted to work in film, she wanted to be a writer, but she was a nurse and she was a good nurse. And the thing that ultimately ended up becoming her creative expression was paperwork, like literally filling out paperwork for her patients. And it was through that paperwork that she decided that she wasn't just going to talk about their vitals or what was happening with their health, but she was going to talk about their lives. And this paperwork started to become like stories that got passed around the hospital from physician to physician, from nurse to nurse. It became the kind of thing that reminded other people at the hospital of why they got into medicine in the first place. And that became her way of expressing her essence. And she didn't have to change anything in order to make that happen. And I think that there are so many more of those stories out there than there are of the person who's like, you know what, I'm done and I'm quitting my job in investment banking and I'm moving to Florence and I'm becoming a painter. Those stories are pretty, pretty, pretty seldom. And by the way, those are, those are pretty luxury oriented stories. Like I made enough money that I was able to like go do this thing. Most of us aren't in that situation, right? Most of us need to kind of figure out the realities and practicalities of life. And the good news is that you don't need to completely undermine everything you have built to this point in order to start expressing yourself in a way that feels pure to you. Right. And Karen ended up writing The Good Wife, which I loved. One of my other hundred questions I had for you, I love the story about your friend Rich. I love the story about your dad finding his essence, being a karaoke coordinator, which everyone needs to read because it's such a good story. It kind of made me cry. It reminded me of my dad. And you have many examples of people in your life that have inspired you? Have have they read everything? Have you connected with all of that? I mean, obviously your parents, but like, you know, people like Rich and people in your life like that. Have they read it? Have you connected? I know there was someone, even the driver that you took a five minute meditation with, have you been able to connect with anyone? The answer is most, most people, but not all. Like the driver, I have not been able to connect with, but I feel like we had this beautiful connected moment where we literally meditated together for five minutes and reset both of our lives. And and I, I love that story. My friend Rich, I mean, he's my best friend, and he had no idea that I was writing about him in the book. And, you know, Rich's story is that he loved to paint, like he was an artist. And then his mom got sick, and he had no choice but to get a full-time job. He was a primary caretaker. His father had passed. And he, and then the person that his mom had married was was abusive and they had fled that relationship. They moved to Michigan, happened to move in the neighborhood next to me. And Rich and I became best friends, grew up as a very, very strong artist. But when his mom got sick, he had to get a full-time job. He had to really start grinding it out at, you know, he, he worked at Trader Joe's and he was working very long hours, which left very little time for him to invest in this like craft. And Rich for me was very much like the the story that if I couldn't find an answer to that, then th there was no point of writing the book. Because the last thing that I wanted was for this to be a book for people who like made a lot of money and then were like, well, now I'm bored. What do I do? And that's just not the point. The point is that it's available to all of us. And so the question was for somebody like Rich, who's taking care of a sick mom, working an incredibly demanding job, lots and lots of hours, how is he going to make room for his craft? How is this all going to come together? 
I mean, I, I tracked him for those years and like trying to figure out like, what was he doing? How was he figuring it out? When I wrote about how it all came together in the book, I did not want to share it with him because I, I felt like if I shared it with him, like over the phone, I mean, the public publisher has a, has a thing about sort of not sending drafts to people. Right. And so when you're fact checking or doing anything, you want to do that, like over the phone, otherwise you're like sharing big excerpts of the book. And I felt like I was going to cry. He and I are like, you know, never sort of been there together. He's never like seen me like sob. And I felt like there was just no way that I was going to get through this without, without crying. It took me literally like days of prep to kind of visualize how it's going to happen. And so we get on the phone and I'm like, Rich, I'm going to read you this story. And the second paragraph, I'm already crying. Yeah, right? of course. And, so, and, and then by the end, I'm like ugly crying. It's like, it's like I'm, <laughs> I'm sobbing. I've got snot running down my I'm nose. I'm going to start crying. The, no, yeah. it's, yeah. I, I was crying. I was like, this rich guy is amazing. I want to hang out with him. What a badass. <laughs> I know you weren't like devoting the whole book to people, like certain people, but like that, that you called out the people that built who you are. That's, a real, that's really, really important. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. A few things we want to do, I want to do. Would you mind reading an excerpt or two from the book that you enjoy? I have like a hundred, but I'd rather you read one or two. And then I want to do a really quick, fun, fast round, meaning first thing that comes to your mind. Yeah, right, absolutely. So, so yeah. if you have yeah, so, one okay. or two. Yeah, yeah. So I've got the galley right here, right? And so- I mean, I have go- it, Asanil, and like, you should see how many, I mean- my daughter was like, are you writing in a book? I'm like, yes, this is what you do in the 90s. Yes. She's like, are you writing that book? Are you yes. actually writing it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the one that was on my mind this morning was a ritual in this book called Wandering Time. And the idea is that like one of the greatest gifts that you can actually give your dharma is like non-productive, deliberately not productive time, just space, right? And so I'll read for you a couple of the paragraphs from this. So Socrates is said to have warned his followers, beware the barrenness of a busy life. But very few of us seem to have listened. We've been conditioned to remove blank slots in our schedule and pack them in with productivity. The sentiment is that when we're not doing something, then we're not doing enough. And yet some of the most profound doers were serious about building wandering time into their schedules. Steve Jobs, for example, was known to take long walks to noodle on new ideas. Albert Einstein was a sailor. He named his boat Tenef, which means trash in Yiddish. Sailing off the coast of Long Island, Einstein would often get so lost in thought that he'd lose his bearings. Locals said they observed a strange man who seemed lost at sea. Sometimes Einstein would dock his boat at the first location he could find and walk around to continue his brainstorming. One time he was apparently so absorbed in thought that he was stopped by the Long Island police officers who thought Einstein was lost. And yet Einstein credits these aimless expeditions with his most breakthrough thinking. So every couple of weeks, schedule a date with your dharma. Take it for a long walk, go on an adventure, however brief, have a silent meal. And during this time, don't listen to a podcast or anything else that will introduce new thoughts. Don't pack those slots with productive activities. Sometimes your dharma doesn't need productivity, but presence. I love that one. Would you mind reading one more for me that I picked? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so me. I actually, I, you're going to think I'm insane. I actually picked one from each chapter. Um, I'm telling you, this really hit me hard. 
you know, my grandparents were meant a lot to me. So your stories about your biology made me really emotional. And this is actually right at the beginning. And I feel like it captures the entire essence of the book. I know essence. I keep saying that. But it might be my new world. Actually, really quickly, my favorite new word I wanted to tell you, which I didn't know about. I wrote this down. Is it paranoia? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that everyone? Am I the third, fourth no, interview? No, no. I, I, no Sorry. It's just something I was like, that I, wait, no. why, why do I not know about this? No, I, I think that every time I've asked somebody if they know what pronoia means, and these are people who I know who are who are very well read, and most of the time people say no, and and I was like so delighted to to learn this word because I hadn't heard it. But pronoia is the opposite of paranoia. Yeah, and it's amazing. And, um, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I might get like a T-shirt for I'll send it to you and your wife. Like just says yeah. that that word. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I mean, it's such a good word. It's so ridiculous because that also feeds into like, you know, the energy you give out, comes back, all that stuff, right? It kind of sums it all up, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if paranoia is the feeling that the universe is conspiring against you, which I've, I've certainly felt before, yeah. paranoia is the feeling that in some way, everything that's happening, including all the setbacks, including all the mistakes are somehow forming into a beautiful picture down the line. They're coming yes. together for some for some reason, right? The art form that I got really into when I was writing this book is kintsugi. Kintsugi, yeah. Yeah, and kintsugi is is I you know, it's I have it highlighted, my friend. Yeah, it's, it's golden. It's I mean, there. I I, I think it's so cool this Japanese art form around taking broken pieces and lacquering the getting them together with this golden material to celebrate like the beauty inside these broken things. I I love, I love that. that. Yeah, the beauty inside broken things because we're all broken in some broken in a, in a beautiful way. If you don't mind, yeah, I love this. I want to hear it just from your voice. I think it's amazing. Are you doing an audible? Are you doing this auto audible book? Yeah, for this? we okay. just we just finished like all the last recordings for Audible. Uh, yeah. you should get the share mic. I mean, all this mic sounds good. It sounds great. It just it's literally page two where we begin. The bottom of it where it says, perhaps Balji knew this was a, would be the last time we'd ever see each other. And then up till the beginning of page three. Perhaps Balji knew this would be the last time we'd ever see each other. He tells me that as I get older, the wheel will move faster. Time will accelerate. Years will squish together. Each birthday will arrive a little sooner than the one before. And as the wheel turns faster and faster, life will pull me to the outside away from who I really am at my core, away from my dharma. That's when Baoji takes a deep breath and begins the journey that you and I are about to take together. Beta, he says for the final time, you must find your way back to the center. Yeah. Anyways, started getting emotional then. So it just reminds me of a kind of parents and the, even the word beta, you know, right? All, all of it. Like that just reminds me of childhood. Um, okay. Fun part. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. First thing that comes to your mind, don't even think. Okay. I mean, Close you can think eyes. a little. You can think a little. <laughs> All right. If you and your brother were in a wrestling match today, who would kick whose ass? He would definitely kick my ass. <laughs> okay. If you were wrestling when you were younger, who would kick whose ass? He would still have kicked okay. my ass. Okay. All right. That's good. He's 10 years older than me. He would have kicked my ass back then, but I just... But he's older now, so you're younger. He's old, he, I just don't think that's ever going to change. Oh, I feel like... I, well, I think that's a mental block, my friend. It might be. It I might, think so. It, it might be. And one he definitely appreciates. I think when he comes to Dallas and you have a family reunion, just try yeah. it out and let me okay. know. Okay. You got it. What personality traits are you the most proud of? I would say persistence. 
Yeah. But I have to I have to add a disclaimer to that because I think about persistence differently now than I did before. Okay. I used to think about persistence as just doing just continuing to move and move and move, right? So you fail, things don't go your way, get back up, wipe yourself off, keep going. And I think that's part of persistence. But I think the other part of persistence is growth. Taking time to really reflect on what happened and what you learned and absorbing that fully was something that I never really took time to appreciate before. I would just kind of, like I just kind of took too much pride and sort of like the get back on the horse without like, actually, let me just take a moment and figure this out and then I'll get back on the horse. Make your, make your broken pieces golden. Yes, right? exactly. Exactly. Describe yourself in one word. Storyteller. What is your biggest pet peeve? Lack of honesty. Tell me about an interesting experience or encounter that you haven't shared with your wife. Oh it doesn't gosh. mean to be like shady or scary. I mean, just you haven't shared with anyone because I'm sure you share everything with your wife. Yeah. Wow. It's funny. You know, I feel like stories do come up even now. We've been married for 15 years and stories do come up. Even like, even in the book, when she read it, she's like, how have we known each other? And we've known each other for 17 years. Like, how is it that like we've known each other for this long and you never yeah. like told and you never told me that, you know? Yeah. And I think the one that comes to mind is that like my nani, my mom's mom, she sang for Mahatma Gandhi. That has always sort of been a very, very important story for me. And like something that I, I think about and, and I know is, 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 is part of me. And yet somehow I had never really, I just had never shared that with her. And then I wrote this entire chapter around service and around Gandhi and that story came up and she's like, what? You never shared this. She's like, I'm sorry, who are you? What's happening? Yeah. No, yeah. look, I, I think I, again, I've been with my husband for 16 years. So it's, it's crazy that the important life-changing stories that you f maybe forget to share, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, they're, or they're so part of you that they're no longer stories anymore. They're just, kind of, they're just kind of who you are. Right. Well, this is great because my next question is, and I'm sure you and your wife are very romantic because uh, I know at the end of the book, and I truly believe this, your partner is a big part of your dharma, right? I truly believe I married the perfect person. I mean, like we're not perfect marriage, but perfect person for, yeah. for who I want to be and who I am. What would you say to your wife right now that you maybe wouldn't in person? <laughs> I know. Don't get emotional. <laughs> yeah. Or no, get emotional. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that like, it's really, really hard to find somebody who is going to let you take action in life. Right even when it's not thought out. And like, I think that that's so important. Like, you know, I see, I see at times that people feel like they need to convince one another, right? They have to convince a partner or convince a spouse. And, and I think the thing about Lena is that she has accepted the fact that like, I'm going to sort of take shots when I don't quite know what it is that I'm actually doing, right? And for me, that's been one of the most important things because if, if she wasn't that way, you know, I think my life would be so different right now. And I don't even think she really appreciates how unique that can actually be. 
I, I don't know if it's just kind of something that comes instinctually for her. And for me, it doesn't, you know, for me, it's, it's kind of like if somebody comes to me with an idea, I'm often the person saying, all right, well, what about this? And what about that? Whereas she's like much more tuned in naturally to what do I see about you energetically? Is it something that, that, that I can see sort of makes you come alive? And that alone has been one of the greatest gifts to my dharma that anybody could give me. See, you knew what to say. Pretty good. <laughs> I agree. With a whole other podcast. We'll do a second round. How do you want to be remembered by the people around you? I want to be remembered as somebody who, who freed them to think about their own essence, you know? And the thing that I come back to is it's not, not from the point of view as like a teacher or anything like that, but I hope that people can see this like, you know, twisted story that I've sort of created like this, this, this sort of pretzel twisted journey that I've taken with all sorts of setbacks and failures and mistakes. And to be able to say like, Hey, like if that person, you know, was able to sort of find something in that, then I can as well. I mean, I think that's what I hope for, for, you know, my kids, I I think that's what I hope for, for my friends and, and, and hopefully for anybody reading the book, Bauji had this saying, which is like, you know, that, that humanity is like a sitar with billions of strings. I have it. I have it highlighted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think about it all the time. And, and his point was that like, you know, you are one string. I am mm-hmm. one string. And sometimes it might seem like, you know, we are separate, right? right. Because we're, our strings are not touching one another necessarily. Right. But every time you learn to play your string, that isn't just for you, it's, it, but it actually harmonizes the entire Absolutely. instrument. It harmonizes the entire universe. It gives other people strings. permission. Right. Yeah, it gives everybody else permission. Like I, I can guarantee for you, I mean, that people like see your podcast, they see the work you're doing, and they're saying, hey, listen, like I have this creative expression that I want to put out there as well. And by watching you do what you're doing, I mean, our 123rd interview, they've watched 122 of them so far, like, or listened to 122 of them so far, like by you fulfilling your dharma, you are giving other people permission to do the same. Yeah, no, I have it. I literally, Balji once told me that God strums a sitar with billions of strings. Each of us is a string and each drum plays the sound of our collective dharma. I mean, literally, the Korea chapter is like all pink. Um, okay. <laughs> Ultimate collaboration. If you could, I mean, this is just an external thing. Don't even yeah. care about internal happiness. Yeah. Oprah, Obama, and t- ultimate collaboration this year. Ultimate collaboration this year is with probably an artist named DJ Drez, who is, he's definitely up and coming, putting out really beautiful, like East meets West music. He, his music is going to be in the audible version of the book, which I love, but I want to create something original. And, and kind of what I have in mind is like, can we start to take some of the messages from Dharma, some of the wisdom of Dharma, and can we start to actually sort of combine them with music, right? Create create tracks where by the end of it, you sort of feel like you've tapped into some insight and also just kind of like listen to some beautiful sounds. So that's amazing. Have you heard of Indo Warehouse by any chance? No. Okay. Google them, you know, Instagram, whatever. Let me know. My One of my good friends is, is a, the co-founder. We'll, we'll talk more later, but uh, I think that would be a great musical partnership for you. Oh, Indo, in, Indo Warehouse. Amazing. Yeah. Last question. Cheesy podcast question. And the answer does not have to be family because that, that's usually the answer, of course. But besides family, 
If it all goes awry, what are your bare bones for happiness? If it all goes awry, bare bones for happiness is being able to sit down at my desk every morning with a cup of coffee and to write on a blank sheet of paper, not with a laptop, not with a phone or anything like that, but literally just blank sheet of paper. And here's why the page always listens. It always listens. No matter what, I can get up every morning. It is my therapy. It is my expression. It is everything wrapped into it. It is my meditation. Everything is wrapped into sitting out on my desk, pulling out a blank sheet of paper or flipping over to a blank sheet in the journal so that it's just it's fresh, it's clean, and just writing. Wow. Beautiful. Love it. Thank you. I really, really, really appreciate your time. I, yeah, I know I've said it a hundred times. I loved, loved the book. I know. I hope it blows up, but if it doesn't, you know, we had a great conversation. This is like one of the rewards is to have conversations like this. So yeah. I know I really, I really appreciate that. And no, and look, I know you're busy in Dallas, but I have my home is open. Oh, that's so nice. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Genie Media with Genie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast.